You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. You can tell a lot about a person from their car. The legend of Coach Emerson sprung to life in the locker room at T.C. Williams High School a few days before varsity baseball tryouts in the spring of 1998. He had pitched in single A for the Milwaukee Brewers. He could hit 94 with his fastball. He had told the athletic director that he would only take the coaching job at our school if they didn't make him quit chewing tobacco. I made the team, and on a cold February afternoon, I showed up at the gym for our first practice of the season. I had a brand new glove that I was hoping would impress Coach Emerson, but we didn't do any throwing or batting practice that day. Instead, he loaded us onto a bus and drove us out to the edge of town. T.C. Williams High School couldn't afford to build its own baseball diamond, so we leased an old field near some overgrown railroad tracks. The PA system didn't work, the outfield was riddled with weeds and broken crack vials. When we got off the bus that first day, Coach Emerson passed out lawnmowers, paintbrushes, and rakes, and divided us into groups. We spent the whole first week of the preseason painting over graffiti on the dugout walls, combing fresh dirt into the infield base paths, and fixing dents in the bleachers. When we did finally start formal baseball practice, there was still no throwing or hitting, just wind sprints, from the right field foul line to center field and back, over and over and over again, until our chests were heaving and we felt dizzy. Coach Emerson ran every sprint with us, shouting at us the whole time. I'm 26 years old, you little bitches. How do I have more energy than you? I told him I wanted to be a pitcher, but he told me I didn't have a strong enough arm. What he needed was a backup catcher. The first drill he had me do was to strap on a mask and a chest protector and kneel behind the plate with my hands behind my back. He told me not to move no matter what. And then he whistled for a couple of upperclassmen to come practice their curveballs, and he howled with laughter as one after another of them pelted my body. Eventually, the season started, and we won our first game against the defending district champions. It was the first game T.C. Williams had won in 15 years. We won 11 more that spring, and by late April, we found ourselves suiting up for T.C.'s first ever playoff game. But the glory was short-lived. We were overmatched by the rangy, corn-fed boys of Central Virginia. The opposing pitcher was mystifying our hitters with change-ups and sliders. And with two outs to go, facing elimination after coming so far, I watched Coach Emerson's knuckles turn white as he gripped the dugout railing. Put your fucking eyes back in your head, you absolute clown! He shouted at the umpire. I'll follow you to the fucking parking lot after this if you don't shape the fuck up. The ump turned to our dugout and glared. And I watched as Coach Emerson's wife rushed up to the fence behind him and started whispering, Billy, don't you do this again. Come on, Billy. Be a good boy. The next spring, I decided I wanted to audition for the school musical. When Coach Emerson didn't see my name on the sign-up sheet for baseball tryouts, he called my house and asked my parents if he could give me a ride home after school. When he picked me up outside the auditorium, I had grown my hair over my ears and swapped out that new glove for a shiny pair of Doc Martens. He glared at me as I opened the door of his pickup truck. 
I brushed a pile of empty Red Man chewing tobacco cans off the passenger seat and climbed in. And that's when I saw it. Coach Emerson had replaced the head of the gear shift in his truck with a baseball. As he shifted gears on the 15-minute drive to my house, he kept running his fingers back and forth over the faded red seams. We didn't talk much, but when he pulled up outside my house, he turned to me and said, Look, Dingman, I need you out there. I said I'd think about it and hurried inside, but there wasn't anything to think about. A few months later, I was putting on my Burger Palace employee number two costume and getting ready for curtain at the auditorium, and rumors about Coach Emerson were spreading around the high school again. They were less flattering this time. He had been fired for throwing a hand weight against the wall and nearly hitting a student in the head. Coach Emerson has been on my mind recently because I've been reading this beautiful novel called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. In the story, an aging preacher is telling his son a story about the preacher's grandfather, a legendary pastor in his own right. The preacher says his grandfather had this withering way of looking at him, of making him feel like he'd never amount to anything. The line that sticks with me goes like this. These people who can see right through you never quite do you justice because they never give you credit for the effort you're making to be better than you actually are, which is difficult and well-meant and deserving of some little notice. For some reason, that line made me think of Coach Emerson. And after I read it, I googled him. It turns out he never pitched for the Brewers minor league affiliate. As far as I can tell, he only played one season of pro ball for an independent league team called the Newark Buffaloes. After that, he bounced around for a few years, coaching various high school programs like ours. But according to his LinkedIn profile, he eventually caught on as a major league scout and spent 17 years working for the Detroit Tigers. In his profile picture, he's grinning the same way he did when our parents showed up to that first home game and gasped when they saw the paint on the dugouts. That day after school and Coach Emerson's pickup, I thought I could see right through him. He was a pathetic 26-year-old washout, a man-child who was desperate for validation from a bunch of teenagers. But even if he wasn't really the guy that we whispered about in the locker room, we ended up revering Coach Emerson, and it wasn't just because we were afraid of him. I think it was something about that baseball on his gear shift. Maybe his life hadn't turned out the way he wanted yet, but he knew that baseball was the thing that literally gave him direction. And until things worked out, he was going to make the best with what he had. And a couple years after he left, when I was a senior, they finally finished the repairs on the press box. And I got to be the public address announcer at home games. So as much pain and humiliation as he caused me behind the plate, it's thanks to him that I ended up behind the microphone. From WALTFM. You're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. And aside from that passage in Gilead, I thought about that moment in Coach Emerson's truck because of one of my favorite lines from this week's story. When we got into his car, it was so full of junk that every time he stopped, it all rushed forward like the wave of an ocean. I'd never met an untidy adult before, so I found this fascinating. 
That's Aaron Barker. And if you've been listening to our show for a while, you might recognize that name. Aaron told a version of this story at one of our Family Ghosts live shows a while back. And we aired that version on a bonus episode that's no longer available. But the audio quality on that version wasn't very good, and Aaron felt like there was more of the story that she wanted to tell. So for this week, we made a studio version of it. And you're going to hear it right after the break. Stay tuned. sat me and my little brother down and asked us, how would we like to move to England for a year? Ever since I was little, my mom had been gone almost every week, Monday through Friday, on a business trip. Each trip, she would bring me back one of those silver souvenir spoons. By the time I was this age, I had display cases full of them, blinding all the walls of my bedroom, and now found them sort of depressing, like a physical representation of all the time we never spent together. I was the only girl in my Girl Scout troop who attended the mother-daughter camping trip with her nanny. This trip to England was the first time my mom had ever wanted us to come with her, and it felt special, even though we had to give some things up. For instance, my dad couldn't come. He had to stay in the U.S. for his job. I was really close with my dad, who would read us a chapter from the Bible every night before bed, and sometimes if we were good, we'd do a Where's Waldo too. And I knew I would miss my church, where I was a perennial Bible Bowl champion. To give you an idea of how religious my family is, we aren't on the level of the people who dance with snakes, but we are on the level where we don't think those people are that weird. (laughs) Like, we'd say hello to them at the grocery store. Like, hey Howard, how are things? How are the snakes? My whole life, my Christian friends were all that I had known. There were times when I wondered if I should be hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors like Jesus did, but I was always assured that that kind of thing was for Jesus. It was better for us to protect ourselves from non-Christians who might be bad influences. After all, even Jericho had walls around it. But mom reassured me that they would have Jesus in England too. So I was in. When we arrived at Gatwick Airport, my mom's friend from work, Andy, picked us up. My mom had had work friends before, like Roger, who was older and had a big bushy mustache and was always making us go out to the driveway to look at his new car. But she never had a friend like Andy. Andy was only about 30 years old, around the same age I am today, 10 years younger than my mom was then. He looked a lot like Beatlemania-era John Lennon, if Beatlemania-era John Lennon had worked in computer software and worn a lot of khakis. When we got into his car, it was so full of junk that every time he stopped, it all rushed forward like the wave of an ocean. I'd never met an untidy adult before, so I found this fascinating. He wasn't like a regular adult. He was like a grown-up kid. He built forts with us and watched cartoons with us. He bought me my cherished first Spice Girls CD. And every Sunday, he would come to church with us. 
My mom told us because Andy was her friend, it was our responsibility to bring him to Christ. And this felt important to me because I cared about Andy. I didn't want him to go to hell like the atheists or the homosexuals. At school, I was alarmingly popular, due almost entirely to the fact that I was an American, I had an American accent, and I'd been to Disney World several times. My classmates would all crowd around me, demanding to know more about my rich and glorious homeland. Are you from New York, Florida, or California? They wanted to know. I had to break it to them that I was actually from the in-between area, a place called Ohio, and they were disappointed, which, to be fair, is always an appropriate reaction to Ohio. I had never been popular before and always thought it might be kind of fun, but it was more disconcerting than I had expected. These boarding school kids were way different from my Sunday school friends at home. They all smoked cigarettes and were, like, on their third marriage. (laughs) On days when Andy came to pick us up, they'd ask, with jaded eyes, Is that your mom's boyfriend? And I'd say, No, my mom is married to my dad. And they'd say, But your dad's still in America, right? And I'd say, yeah, but just for work. And they'd have kind of a knowing smirk. But I knew they were wrong because we were Christians. We didn't believe in divorce and things like that didn't happen to us. God protected us. I can still remember the time when I was little and I was watching an episode of Sesame Street where they were talking about different kinds of families. Like some kids are adopted, some parents are divorced. I obviously found this terrifying. So I turned to my mom and asked, would you and dad ever get divorced? And she said, of course not, honey, we're Christians. This, to me, amounted to a binding contract. But something about my classmates' knowing smirks got into my head. A few weeks later, we stayed overnight at Andy's house for the first time was this sparsely furnished bachelor pad that had three bedrooms upstairs. I lay in bed that night next to my mouth-breathing little brother, and I thought, I have to know. I made a plan. A plan that bore an uncomfortable resemblance to my plan to find out if Santa Claus was real. I knew which bedroom was Andy's. I decided I would get up and go into the third bedroom and see if my mom was sleeping in there. If she was, I would know that everything was fine and all of those heathens at school were wrong. If she woke up, I would just tell her I wanted a drink of water because that was a normal thing for a kid to wake up a parent for, right? If she wasn't there, I would know she was sleeping in Andy's bed and the world would be a different place than I thought it was. So I got up out of my bed and I crept across the hallway to the third door. I put my hand on the doorknob and I could feel my heart beating through my chest as I turned it and opened the door. There she was, asleep on a twin bed. She didn't wake up when I opened the door so I just closed it and went back to bed ashamed of my own suspicions. How could I have doubted her? I cursed those boarding school heathens and their sinful minds and For the rest of my life, I rested comfortably in the knowledge that my family, a Christian family, would never go through the kinds of things that other families go through. Just kidding. The room was completely empty. Nothing except some boxes and stacks of paper, not even a bed. 
barely slept that night. I just kept counting the minutes until I could get up and go down to the breakfast table and have my mother explain this away. Because there had to be an explanation. She told me herself she was a Christian and Christians didn't lie or cheat or get divorced. Finally, morning came and I went downstairs and I asked my mom, where did you sleep last night? All cash. And she froze, crumpet halfway to her mouth. Then she said, I was in a guest bedroom just like you. So then I said, I looked in the other bedroom and you weren't there. I needed a glass of water. My mom wasn't really looking at me when she said, Well, there was another bedroom that you didn't see. In this moment, I had a decision to make. Either my entire belief system could be completely shattered, or I could choose to believe an invisible bedroom that I knew did not exist and have everything go back to normal. The choice was clear. I didn't ask any more questions. I shoved it back into a dark corner of my mind. But even so, it didn't stop me from becoming miserably unhappy, from losing that feeling that we were untouchable, that God protected us from sin. I would sometimes start crying in the middle of my classes for reasons that I couldn't really explain. Eventually, my dad arranged for me and my brother to return to the States mid-semester without my mom. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. Ghost family, if you're enjoying Aaron's story, or any of the stories that we tell here on Family Ghosts, chances are you are someone who cares about really understanding people, trying to see them for who they actually are. And on this week's Kindred Spirits exclusive, myself and a very special guest— Try to figure out if that's even possible, with a little help from Roald Dahl. Now, you may be asking yourself, what is a Kindred Spirits exclusive? Well, that's a bonus episode of Family Ghosts, released twice a month, and it is available exclusively to our supporters on Patreon, who we call the Kindred Spirits. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get those bonus episodes— where you might hear anything from a long-form interview with one of the characters in a family ghost story to a futuristic dystopian radio drama in space to this week's recollection of a critical scene in the BFG. Kindred Spirits also hear our episodes ad-free, and on top of all that, they get the satisfaction of knowing that they're providing critical support for the work we do here at WALT. I know it might seem strange for me to ask for your financial support when you hear ads in the breaks on Family Ghosts. But the truth is, we wouldn't be able to sustain this project without the support of its listeners. It's thanks to you that we're able to make our show at the level of quality you expect. So if you're already a member, thank you. And if you aren't, and you have the means, please consider joining the Kindred Spirits at patreon.com slash familyghosts. One day, my dad picked me up from school and took me out for ice cream. And that was when I knew things were about to get worse. 
Every time my dad has bad news, he takes us out for ice cream. Don't ever go to the Cold Stone Creamery with my dad. Just don't do it. Unless you want to find out that grandpa has cancer or your dog was put to sleep or your nanny was fired for stealing your mother's jewelry. We got our ice cream of doom and my dad sat me down and told me that my mother was pregnant with a baby that wasn't his. He asked me if I knew who the father was and I realized that I did know. And everything I'd been pushing back into that dark corner was suddenly impossible to avoid. Especially because soon after this, my mother returned to the States and bought a house with Andy down the street from my father's. Because the neighborhood didn't already have enough to talk about. Our fellow church members started treating us like we had some kind of disease that might be contagious. Neighbors whispered behind our backs, or sometimes when my dad wasn't around, would tell me to my face that my mother was a whore. Once I was at a friend's house while his parents were having a party, and his mother forced me to tell the story of my parents' divorce for the entertainment of her guests. We weren't on the inside of those walls of Jericho anymore. And if we weren't on the inside, it was like we didn't even matter, except as jokes or cautionary tales. It turns out that from the outside, evangelical Christianity is a lot less pleasant. Twelve years of faithful Sunday school attendance, hundreds of memorized Bible verses, a lifetime devotion to abstaining from swears, even the ones that weren't that bad. And here I was, on the outside anyway. No better than the atheists and the homosexuals. I was consumed by this rage over everything that had been taken from me. My perfect Christian life and my perfect Christian family and my perfect Christian church. Now it was all broken and messy and complicated. It went down in my mother's house one weekend. It was confronted by the sight of a small pink baby that I was told was my new sister. Do you want to hold her? My mother asked. No, I didn't want to hold her. I didn't want to look at her. This baby had ruined my life. I made a commitment in that moment to hate this baby for the rest of my life, possibly longer. There was just one problem. I don't know if you've ever tried to hate a baby, and it's really fucking hard. Because everything they do is magical. And this was especially true for my sister, Emma, who had a little Pebbles Flintstone ponytail on her head. And as me and my mom started to bond again over our mutual love of Emma and our mutual hatred of the Teletubbies, I started to wonder if what had happened to us was really all that bad. And then at school, I found out that actually an amazing thing happens when you get ostracized by the Christians, which is that you get to hang out with the atheists and the homosexuals. And it turns out they're a lot more fun. Who knew? I also discovered Jews during this time. Now, when Amanda Hines told me that my mother was a whore, I had a bunch of new friends who told her to shut the fuck up and go back to journaling about our math teacher. Thinking back to that moment when I'd opened the door to that spare bedroom and found it empty, I realized I wouldn't change it. If it weren't for that moment, I wouldn't have Emma, I wouldn't have my new friends, and I wouldn't have discovered what my faith really meant. 
It wasn't about feeling superior or safe or protected from all the bad or scary things in the world. It was about having courage to love people despite their differences or their imperfections. So I forgave my mom. And I even forgave Andy. And a few years later, when my mom found a photo of a children's soccer team while she was cleaning the garage and discovered that he'd been coaching his mistress's kid's soccer team for the entire season behind her back, I forgave him again. And I forgave him when we found photos of him with another local soccer mom in Vegas. And I forgave him when we found those emails he had exchanged with still more local soccer moms that contained photos of engagement rings and swatches for how they would redecorate my mom's house when they moved in. And then I forgave him for taking my mom's money in the divorce. <laughs> That's how fucking Christ-like I am, friends. All have fallen short of the glory of the Lord. Some fuckers more than others, I think we can all agree. But in a way, I owe him a debt of gratitude. Because if not for Andy putting his dick where it didn't belong... I might not be the person I am today. The person who, when her little brother came out of the closet, was able to tell him that I love him and accept him for who he is instead of yelling Old Testament verses at him. The person who belongs to a church that protests things like concentration camps instead of looking away. The person whose bridal party a few years ago was made up entirely of atheists, Jews, and homosexuals. <laughs> Except for my maid of honor, who was that baby I'd once thought I'd hate for the rest of my life. Because now I can recognize that all of this brings me closer to God and His infinite love. Not farther away. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. This week's story was written and told by Aaron Barker. Aaron is the executive director of The Story Collider, a nonprofit organization where science and storytelling intersect. You can hear more of Aaron on The Story Collider's wonderful storytelling podcast, as well as The Moth Radio Hour and many other places. Check our show notes for links where you can find more of Aaron's work. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Louis Guerra. Incidental music is from Blue Dot Sessions. If you're looking for something to listen to in the off weeks between episodes of Family Ghosts, and if you like the HBO dramedy Six Feet Under, check out Fisher Family Ghosts, our first ever Family Ghosts spinoff. Every week, my partner Adrian and I watch an episode of Six Feet Under, and then talk about the ways the characters, themes, and narrative affect our perspective on storytelling and our own families. Find Fisher Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. If you have the means, please consider becoming a member of the Kindred Spirits at patreon.com slash familyghosts. 
And if you don't, no worries. Please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It takes less than 30 seconds, and it makes a huge difference in terms of helping new listeners find our show. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new story. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then.